Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Our Black Queer Rising series continues today with Colorado Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod. She's held down the 8th District in Colorado since 2016, and she's the first openly gay Black woman elected to the Colorado House of Representatives in the state's history. She guided the passage of a voter-supported tax to fund mental health and drug rehabilitation centers in the city of Denver. And now she's looking to secure the role of mayor in this April's election. And she's got support from some who helped pave the political way for her, including prominent Colorado politician and the first black mayor of Denver, Wellington Webb. Webb served as Denver's mayor for 12 years throughout the 90s and early aughts. I think the city needs a new generation of leadership, a new generation of that brings fresh ideas, that brings fresh energy, that uh, has the ability to connect with all segments of the population. My decision is only that I support people and it's up to them to run and take their case to the people and then let the people decide. Herod recently spoke with my colleague, Janae Pierre. Representative Herod, welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks so much for having me. You've made quite a name for yourself within the realm of criminal justice reform. What are some of these reforms and why make this such a core focus during your tenure as a Colorado state representative and during your run for mayor? Absolutely. Well, listen, we have heard for decades, generations, you know, that the war on drugs uh, targets and destroys communities, especially black and brown communities. Um, And quite frankly, the war on drugs um, has failed in any way, shape or form if we're looking at it from a public safety perspective, um, alongside of a public health perspective. It was just really put there to terrorize our communities. And um, so that that's fact, right? That's what we know. Um, but as I step back from that, I will also tell you that my family has experienced um, the impacts directly. Uh, my sister was in and out of prison for 30 years um, due to uh, drug use, substance misuse, um, alongside of uh, lack of treatment. Um, and I saw firsthand what the system did to her, which was tell her she wasn't worth it, that she wasn't valued, and that she uh, deserved to be in prison as opposed to being in community with our family and with her kids. Uh, and that is um, that is tearing us apart. And so as a legislator, I took that experience and said that it would be a priority of mine to reform the criminal justice system, not just for my family, but for families that have experienced it uh, just like ours, you know, so many families across this country and definitely across Colorado. Uh, And so I got to work pretty quickly. Uh, My first committee was serving on the Judiciary Committee and the Finance Committee to tie together how uh, a corrupt criminal justice system actually impacts uh, the finances and the economy of our state uh, and since then have passed the bills that you've mentioned uh, and, and and moved on to serve as the chair of the Appropriations Committee uh, to pass some of the most comprehensive police accountability uh, and criminal justice reform bills that the state has seen. Absolutely. You have indeed been busy. Um, 
And you come from a family of people who serve. Your mother was an officer in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, and the man you refer to as your adoptive father, he worked in law enforcement for decades. Um, how has your upbringing, you know, what you saw and heard from adults in your life, influenced the way you legislate? And also, how how have they influenced the legislation that you find important to focus on? Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important to juxtaposition all of this stuff together. And it kind of, um, you know, intersectionality is something that we all talk about, but damn, you know, it is really a part of my life in so many ways. Um, so, you know, my sister is older than me. She has a different father than I do. My mom raised her in Oakland, California. Uh, and when my mom chose to leave Oakland, uh, she joined the military. Military. And my sister uh, chose to stay behind. Um, we found out later that she was sexually assaulted not very long after that. Uh, and that's what led her down that path of, uh, of drug abuse. Um, but for me, my mom uh, had me on a different path. Um, she fought to make sure that I had access to good quality education. Um, and that was a priority for our family was, was education. Um, along the way though, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of challenges, um, with my family. And I was very lucky to be, have been adopted into a family where my dad was actually, you know, law enforcement. Uh, my mom on that side of the family, um, was, uh, head of Colorado Springs utilities. So just hardworking people, um, that stepped in when I needed, uh, kind of more hands on my shoulders, if you will, a village uh, to help to help raise me alongside of my mother. Uh, and seeing, you know, my father's experience within the justice system uh, as law enforcement and seeing my sisters really has shaped the work that I do today. You know, he agrees that it is not, um, one, a good use of the system's time and money to incarcerate those who are addicted. Uh, he agrees that those who are, um, are, are, you know, law enforcement officers, correctional officers are not equipped uh, to deal with substance misuse and mental health. Um, but the majority of the folks in our system need that support and help. So our system is failing and not working. And so seeing, you know, what happens inside of a, 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 a prison from the inside, from my sister's perspective, and from you know the other side of the bars, from my dad's perspective, has led me to not only speak about these bills uh, and pass these bills from a, a place of um, policy, but also from a place of deep personal knowledge. Okay, after the break, we're going to hear from Representative Herod about the Enhanced Enforcement Integrity Act. It requires officers to wear body cameras and report any use of force that causes injury or death. And we'll be talking about the duty to intervene. We have to make sure that we have um, a duty to intervene provision with criminal um, liability, criminal accountability for officers, so that when they see a George Floyd Act happening, that they are held accountable, that they actually have a duty to intervene and to stop the abuse from happening. It's The Takeaway. on the media, one former NPR editor's grievances are reverberating far beyond a Substack essay. He claims wokeness is ruining the place. That marginalized people are storming the barricades and dictating that this story happens and this story gets killed and we're going to use this language and not use that language. That's not what I saw. On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. 
Our Black Queer Rising series continues with Colorado Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod. She sat down with my colleague, Janae Pierre. I want to talk about one of the bills you co-sponsored. It's the Enhanced Enforcement Integrity Act. That one requires officers to wear body cameras and report any use of force that causes injury or death. And it also eradicates qualified immunity. For those of us who might not yet know how this could shift policing, can you tell us what qualified immunity is and what you believe eliminating it can do? Yeah. Qualified immunity is, is definitely an important provision that I had no idea what it was when I um, when I first started hearing about it after the murder of, of George Floyd. But many people had fought and worked to end qualified immunity or to shed a light on what qualified immunity was in our communities for years. This is a very legal term, but in, 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 simple, in simple words, I will say uh, that basically what it does is it removes the shield of protection that law enforcement have against prosecution when they harm people in our communities. We often see these videos, we hear comment, we we see records and report of law enforcement very clearly harming people in our communities or very clearly violating someone's constitutional rights. And yet they continue to be officers. They continue to move forward without any personal responsibility or accountability. Um, So qualified immunity removes that immunity. It says that law enforcement can be held accountable should they do wrong wrong by us, wrong by the people that they are there to serve and protect. Uh, Colorado became one of the first came, became the first state to to uh, to remove qualified immunity for law enforcement uh, in Colorado through Senate Bill 217, uh, which was brought forward uh, during the summer of 2020 uh, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd uh, and locally Elijah McClain. Um, that provision in itself, I believe, uh will provide and has provided change within law enforcement's interaction with communities. But we've got to also pass it at the federal level. We hear about the Justice and Policing Act, the George Floyd Act. Uh, ending qualified immunity is in that in that act, and it's so very important that we keep it there, that we keep it there. But there are other provisions that are equally as important. We have got to make sure that all of our law enforcement has body cameras that are on, that are unedited, and that that footage is able to be released upon approval of the victims or their families to community. So we know the truth. Additionally, we have to make sure that we have um, a duty to intervene provision in with, with criminal um, liability, criminal accountability for officers so that when they see a George Floyd act happening, that they are held accountable, that they actually have a duty to intervene and to stop the abuse from happening. Yeah. You spoke briefly about the Colorado law that requires officers to intervene um, in the event that they see another officer using excessive force or violating someone's rights. And you've said that had there been a similar law in Tennessee, um, it would have stopped the brutal attack on Tyree Nichols. Now, I'm not entirely sure a law can do what people's hearts cannot, right? How would this legislation stop this? You know, I agree with you. Um, It's hard to say that, oh, if we pass this law, you know, someone would be alive today. But what I will say is that, uh, again, the combination of laws um, that we need to put in place to hold people accountable, one, you know, we don't know these officers' records. We don't know what led to this. But what we do know is that this this power imbalance, this back the blue at all costs, leads to this mob mentality that we've got to break down. You know, we cannot legislate hate out of people's hearts. Uh, but what we can do is make sure that they're held accountable. So you're running for mayor of Denver. 
The election is right around the corner. It's set to take place on April 4th of this year. And like many cities across the nation, thousands of unhoused people sleep on the Denver streets every night. And that population is growing rapidly. I'm curious about how you see the problem and your plan to address homelessness in Denver. Absolutely. Um, It is my honor to be running to be Denver's next mayor. Denver has never had a female mayor in the history of our city, much less a Black female mayor um, who has a history of um, kind of implementing bold legislation to make real change. That's what I want to do for our city. Um, Quite frankly, you know, the city has become a place, uh, the city that I love has become a place that uh, has become quite frankly, a little bit unrecognizable. Um, We're lacking compassion and care and solutions uh, to address our unhoused population. Uh, For me, that means making sure there is more mental health and substance misuse support for those who need it. I created the largest mental health foundation in Colorado, focusing specifically on getting people mental health and substance misuse care when they need it, Uh, building out a new infrastructure, putting in over $100 million into community-based mental health and substance misuse services. That's important. That's one way we tackle this issue. But additionally, we've got to make sure that we have housing for people. It is inhumane to have people living on the streets of Denver in trash, in trash, while we have vacant lots in in our city that we could build upon, where we can create housing for people that need it with services that they need within that housing. We can do that. And quite frankly, I believe that Denver deserves a mayor that believes we can, Uh, because when we lose hope, right, we lose action. And that's what we need right now in our city. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge your being the first openly gay Black woman elected to the Colorado House of Representatives. What does that mean to you, and what do you hope it means for the future of Colorado? Well, you know, I think that means very clearly that I stand on the shoulders of giants who have done this work before me, some who were also LGBTQ but couldn't be out, you know, some who are Black women um, who strive to say that we are breaking down barriers at every turn. Um, I stand on their shoulders, and I'm proud to be able to be out and in this position, uh, leading the race for Denver's mayor. Um But that does come with an enormous responsibility. Uh, My job uh, and and, and my role in community is to continue to lift up people who have been left off the table, who have been left out of the conversations, to bring folks in to say, how can we solve these issues together? That is the role, you know, and we are going to look different when we do that work. Um, And so I'm I'm proud to be here in this role. I'm proud to be in here in this position. Um, But I will say that it has the responsibility and the honor to say that we're going to do things differently. We're going to have different voices here, and we're going to shape Denver for the future, for the better, for all of us. Mm -hmm. When you hear the phrase Black queer rising, what comes to mind? Ah, that 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 we are we are on the up, right? Like that it's not something that we are starting. Um, while I'm the first African American LGBTQ person uh, to hold office in Colorado, out, um, I'm not the only anymore. You know, we rise together. And when I hear the term Black queer rising, that's what it means. It means we are rising together. No longer will we be in the shadows. No longer will we allow um, cities to move forward without us. No longer will we allow um, folks to profit off of our backs without us being able to thrive as communities and families as well. You know, what this means is that we are rising together and that together we are going to make real transformative change for people who look like us, but also for everyone in our communities. And quite frankly, quite frankly, our country will not thrive without us. 
Democratic Colorado State Representative and Denver mayoral candidate, Leslie Harrod. Representative Harrod, thanks so much for spending time with us on The Takeaway. Thanks for having me. That was Janae Pierre speaking with Democratic Colorado State Representative and Denver mayoral candidate, Leslie Harrod, as part of our Black Queer Rising series.